Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life, and the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson, and today we've got a really cool guest that's going to talk about something that we've not really talked about on this podcast ever, and that's like shared housing, shared living. We do it in student housing all the time, but my guest, Matt, is going to talk about a way to do this business He's doing it at a very high level and remodeling stuff, but the bones of what he's talking about are absolutely amazing. I love his energy. I love his vision. It is really, really cool. Before we get into that, though, a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to take your multifamily game to the next level and learn the amazing results of living the cash flow life? Apartment investing can change your life. I know for a fact it's changed mine. And I would like to share my extraordinary journey with you and the clues I've learned along the way by giving you my book, Copy Your Way to Success, for free. So text the word book, B-O-O-K, to 480-500-1127. Again, that's the word book, B-O-O-K, to 480-500-1127. And my team will ship it to you absolutely free as a way to say thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember your paradise is possible. All right, we're back. This is going to be a great podcast. You're not going to want to to get away from it. I'm super excited about this concept because I took notes. I took a lot of notes on this one, and I know you guys will too. So let's get into it. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So this is going to be a really cool episode because this is something that I'm very interested in. And really, the dynamic of how to rent stuff by the bed, right? We do that in the student housing business. But to take that just to normal people out there, because everybody's looking for a deal and shared living. We used to have roommates when we were younger, at least a lot of us did. And sometimes as young adults and people are not getting together, I mean, maybe this is a new strategy, I think, that people should pay attention. Before we do that, though, Matt, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your company, how you came up with this concept. Yeah. so. I started Revive back in 2016 to focus on a neighborhood-specific approach to real estate investment, where I felt that by doing so, we could mitigate some of the unintended consequences, displacement, a lack of capital flow to certain neighborhoods. My understanding was that when market forces kind of move into neighborhoods, the people that are there don't always get a choice as to what to happens. And can we take a much more integrated approach, if you will, to it? And it kind of starts with my experience with the local community member, Ms. Pam. You can read about that on our website. And what it's really evolved to is starting to kind of productize these kind of -of out-of-the-box approaches to real estate. We started with a value-add approach that focused on tenant retention. We had some regulatory issues ding us in Sacramento where they passed rent control, which kind of threw us for a loop there. I can't take credit for the co-living model. It's been existing for quite some time. I mean, literally decades, but obviously there's been a lot of venture capital flow. And so I was introduced to it through Ben Proven of Open Door, who is a local property management company here. And for us, it checked a lot of the boxes where we felt like it was solving a lot of problems, both from an affordability component, but also as far as being able to deliver a small to medium density product in these up and coming neighborhoods to young professionals who are oftentimes kind of getting blamed for being the gentrifiers, right? When they're just out there trying to seek 
what everyone's seeking for, an affordable rent in a well-located portion of a city or a neighborhood. Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes in certain cities and certain neighborhoods, the affordability is out the door. And to buy a home anymore, it takes lots more dollars, especially with higher interest rates and smaller LTVs. How do you get into a place, right? How do you make it as a young professional? And that leads to what you guys do. So let's talk, and more importantly, so tell us about this product. How does it work? What works best? What do you guys see out there? And how does this thing all come together? Yeah, so we really wanted to focus on the small to medium-sized product type, turning Victorians into 10 to maybe 16, 20 bedrooms, converting old industrial warehouses that have a funky architectural component to mixed-use co-working, co-living here in Oakland and Berkeley. And what we found was trying to find that product was really challenging. When COVID hit, there were some semi-distressed office buildings that were great conversions. They were previously residential. They were converted to law offices. So we scooped up a couple of those on a really low basis in Denver and Sacramento and filled our pipeline relatively quickly. And so we still believe in that model. We still think there's some deals that are out there that are good conversion opportunities. There's been a lot of buzz about office to multifamily. Your traditional mid to high rise, I kind of stand where everyone else does. I think it has a lot of inherent challenges. I think it's a lot of riffraff. And what we're focusing on now is trying to get to a ground up model, a build to suit model where effectively we can continue to deliver products in a rapid pace, which is part of what we focus on in these neighborhoods, right? And as far as how it works, it's pretty simple. You're taking what is an already an existing, call it model, right? People go to Craigslist roommate share, people go in and rent a three and four and five bedroom apartment, and they split it amongst their friends or they'll get roommates to help bring down their rent, right? To get a more affordable rent because a studio in a one bedroom maybe six, seven, $800 more a month. And what's been interesting is not only do you have developers that are moving into us like us, but you also have property management companies who are venture capital backed, who are moving into this space, who are also bootstrapped, who are helping optimize that experience for tenants because it is a different experience, much like student housing, it takes a different operating property management model, right? And as far as how it works, it's exactly that. You're renting a bedroom, you're furnishing the common areas, you're doing a mixture of ensuite where someone has their own private bathroom as well as shared baths. We've talked with a lot of people in the industry, a lot of people are moving away from that. I tend to get pushed and pulled in different directions. To me, it's about affordability and an affordability for choice. Is someone really willing to pay an extra $150 a month if they can't afford it to share a bath versus have their own renter choice and having the ability to have that option for someone, especially who's maybe a retailer or a service worker, right? And wants to live in a good location in a great neighborhood in a primary market like Denver or Sacramento. So for us, that's the quick and dirty, honestly. Again, furnishing the common areas, renting by a bedroom, the lease periods are a minimum of three months to 12. Obviously, we want people to give optionality. And as we focus on our ground up products, again, no original ideas from our perspective. We've spoken, looked at a lot of big developers who are doing, call it sub-institutional, ground up, four to five, six stories. And starting to mix a traditional multifamily approach, studios, one bedroom, two bedrooms. And the idea behind that is as someone moves out of co-living, maybe they have a pay raise. They're like, hey, I want to go out on my own. I want to rent a studio now. I want to rent a one and two bedroom. You basically have a turnkey. They can move in the same building, right? And there's various models that we're looking at. Three-story walk-up. Again, how can we kind of condense and compact costs to really be able to deliver product and affordable rent? And for us, that's kind of in that anywhere from $1,100 to $1,400 a month. On average, our tenants are going to save between $350 to almost $750 a month versus going out renting a studio and living by themselves. That's the key ingredient here is affordability. Gen Zs, 
They're no different than millennials. They're spending over 40% of their income on rent. A lot of them are priced out of the single family home market. They're going to be renting for longer. This is a trend that is, even with the backbreaking interest rates that we have, I don't think it's a problem that's going to go away. This is a great idea. And I'm going to look at it and say, okay, well, what about me? Right. So I wonder if this works for me. Yeah. So I own just traditional apartments. Right. So I have a lot of student housing that are next to colleges. Well, on some of my smaller colleges, enrollment has kept on ticked down after COVID. Right. Yeah. So we have higher vacancies than we would like. Right. But the question is, is there enough people that live in that area that would be like, oh, you know what? I don't want to rent a one bedroom. And I'm okay sharing living space, right? Because these are all usually set up either four bedroom, four baths, or four bedroom twos with a shared floor plan. Usually they get their own vanity, but they have a shared bath, right? Four two. Have you seen that work at all in that type of conversion? I can't speak to that conversion directly because it's still a fairly small industry, right? First things first is if you have prospective tenants who are maybe getting ready to move out, ask them. When someone moves out of a dormitory style, privacy and the ability to be secluded off. Sound transmission is a big one as part of that privacy, right? The ability to have a little bit more personal space. The common area amenities, I think is also an integral part, well-furnished, high-grade furniture, some style, some design in there. We're hiring interior designers to go in an outfit and just a little bit increase the quality of finishes as well. Are you adding any of the other stuff when you say fully furnished? Are you adding plates, silverware? Is that kind of the stuff that you're putting in those communities? Yeah, all basic amenities, adding in cleaning services for common areas, adding in some further amenities that tenants kind of benefits them, community-related activities as well. There's been a lot of talk as we're looking to onboard different types of operators and Ben Proven, who we hired as well to help kind of consult with us through that process. The key thing is deliver the basics, right? When a meeting ticket goes in, the toilet breaks, get it fixed. Everything else is just kind of cherry on top. You have to be a great, strong operator first and foremost. Yeah, for sure. I think that's the premises of any good system or process is management is key, right? Yep. Taking care of when things break, you got to have someone that quickly responds because you're adding service here. Now, you mentioned earlier Craigslist, right? So what other marketing aspects do you use to find those types of tenants? Is, is Craigslist a main driver or is that just one of many? What are your top three? Yeah, it's one of many. I mean, right now, there's so many co-living websites that are actually popping up. I mean, co-living.com, I think, being one of them. And you're also starting to see another segment of this market, which is digital nomads, people who are traveling about the country, if not the world, who are looking for places to stay. We haven't tapped as much into those resources, but it's really a diverse mix. And you really want to kind of focus on that co-living crowd specifically, because obviously, they've kind of already done their research and they're going into it. Craigslist is a great one. And maybe a tenant profile that isn't necessarily walking in saying, hey, I want to share space unless they're looking at Craigslist roommate share, right? And I think that's kind of the key ingredient there. And on the Craigslist, is that you're posting almost every day or multiple posts, right? Yep. Yep. Awesome. That's huge. So that's just a marketing play, right? Because every market's a little bit different. And the best way to do it is to test it. I got to fill some beds. Well, why not create the experiment, right? What does it cost to furnish one bed, one unit, nice, and then put money into the game and see what happens? Because the worst case is, oh, it didn't work, but what if it does? 
Yeah. And feedback from your leasing agent. Once you fill those beds and you're turning over one bed on a four unit, community engagement as far as interviewing prospective tenants, understanding if it's a fit. There's even software tools that have come out out of Europe because there's very well-established co-living community in Europe who are actually helping doing roommate pairing. We haven't looked into those as well, but I think it long-term... We use roommate pain for student. And so it's just like, okay, that might be another piece that you can add to it because that really does make a difference, right? Yeah. I mean, there's different personality types. Certain people jive with some and some are prone to conflict, right? And so for you, you want to really want to focus on finding a good match. When there's not a good match or there's a little bit of toxicity happening, you have to move quickly. You really have to find an alternative option. Yeah, that's a great idea. That is true. Everybody becomes unhappy at that point, right? So delivering and finding that type of product, which you guys are talking about in major markets where rents are probably extremely high, that is exciting and fun. Where do you see growth continuing to happen? Is it in the same markets that you're at or additional markets you want to add to? Yeah, I mean, there's always markets that we want to add. And developers, architects really enjoy the concepts because it's new, right? And there aren't a lot of things in real estate oftentimes that are new. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a bit of a boring industry at times. But yeah, we've seen co-living operators, right? Small scale and big scale, even go out into the burbs and start to sub out and rent by room and track homes, which to me, that doesn't fit our thesis, but it works for them. I don't know what their vacancy rates were through COVID. Again, this is about affordability first and foremost. So I think as long as they're at an audience that is trying to bring down their rents. There always is though, especially at times like this, right? I mean, I believe like when we have economic downturns, this is people are looking like, how do I take my $1,000 or $1,500 a month and turn it into a thousand, right? Or $1,700 a month to make it 800. Like those are solutions people are looking for. Now in the units themselves, is it all bills paid? They're not all splitting electric, right? All owner paid. So we just include it and charge a flat fee on utilities. Okay. My prior background, I was in the energy efficiency and green building field. So we focus a lot on retrofitting these buildings, including the two historical buildings that we're doing in a way that we're going to far reduce our operating costs over the long term. Yeah. Okay. So as green as you can, and then it's all bills paid because that's, again, making it easy and users say, I need to move in. I just need a place. I'm a working professional or whatever it is. They just want a place to go home and like, it's all done. Yep. And they're going to pay for some convenience a little bit, but they're also looking at the savings. They're like, this is a win. Totally. Right. And in your major markets, obviously that's, I think the Delta is way more huge in that aspect, right? Where I'm at, I'm college towns, but I'm like, gosh, there's a solution maybe for me to fill up some units that necessarily don't get rented. Like sometimes one or two of our properties, we're always 90%. That's the number. And like, how can we get an extra five or seven? This might be a solution. Yeah. Because they're already furnished, right? Now we might have to upgrade the furniture or whatever, right? Because you want that working professional, that person in there. But yes, the goal is to test and measure. Yeah, absolutely. That's the name of the game. And how did you first come up with this thesis, this idea? I mean, it's not a new idea, but to make it in the scale that you're doing is different. Yeah. I mean, again, it wasn't mine per se. When I got introduced to it by Ben, we were looking at a deal together and it was previously an SRO in Oakland and got introduced to it then. And we were kind of looking for something else. The value add element, again, had kind of been tampened. We were a little bit frustrated by that with what we were seeing in California. I'll tell you what interested us about it. Again, we kind of look at these young professionals that are moving into these neighborhoods 
as competing with some of the existing community members on this low density housing, right? A single family home can only house three or four people. A value add investor may say, hey, I can rent to a young group of people and kick this person out and rent to them and renovate it. And so you're kind of getting this inherent competition, right? Between young professionals. Well, as part of a revitalizing community, quote, gentrifying community, if we can rapidly deliver a product that tailors to these young professionals that they're looking for, that affordable rent, can we reduce competition on the low to medium density housing for that older senior person or low income person who's in that community? Yeah, we absolutely can. And so that was like, okay, checkbox number one. Can we deliver a product that's brand new, that's at an affordable rent without having to go the rigmarole of tax subsidies and all the web of complexity that is affordable housing? We really wanted to attack affordable housing in an innovative private sector way, right. an entrepreneurial spirit in this. So checkbox number two, right? And then the missing middle, when you look at how we're revitalizing pocket neighborhoods in around urban cores... It's really kind of either renovating existing stock or delivering five-story units. There's not a lot of gap in between. Well, what's happening again is what we discussed in point one. A lot of people are moving in and absorbing that existing housing stock. People are getting pushed out. People that need access to public transit, walkable, bikeable retail, close access to good jobs. And in the meantime, we need to deliver product in that small to medium density, that 10 to 50 unit mark. They call it the missing middle. But we're struggling from a policy perspective to get there. It doesn't pencil as developers talk about all the time, right? right. So again, checkbox number three. Now we can deliver product in that 10 to 50 range. We're not hamstrung by this. And the other two checkboxes are really a part of our thesis and what we're trying to do. Let's productize this and get this off the ground. And again, so that's kind of when we look at Revive in a bigger picture, it's moving and starting to evolve into kind of productizing these various types of housing and moving them to scale to kind of attack this broader problem of displacement and pushing people outside of cities, which frankly, developers oftentimes get blamed for that. We're the problem, right? Right. Not the fact that there's all this hindrance in the marketplace to truly deliver housing for all different types of people in those neighborhoods. Right. Well, I just think it's an incredible story. I mean, because that's really Entrepreneur 101. I got this thing. I think it's a deal, but how do I make it work? Yeah. Right? And that's really where you guys start having to put the cranks in the gears and saying, okay, what would work? And then, like you said, you start checking the boxes and you start seeing a vision. And then, obviously, you guys did the vision the first time and it worked. Yeah. First value add deal we crushed. Yeah. So, you're like, wait a sec. We're on to something. Yeah, we're stabilizing our co-living project. Our first in Denver right now. We're about to deliver that shortly. We definitely had our lumps there with a 140-year-old office building that hadn't been touched in 35 years. So yeah, it was nine months of building planning and building department approvals. I mean, it was crazy, man. For what is only we thought would be 10 beds is only going to be nine. But it was a good real estate deal outside of all those things. So that's why we did it. Right. But again, you prove the model, right? Like at the end of the day, if it all works at the end, as long as you're successful in that endeavor, you're like, okay, now what can we do better? That's when you version 2.0 comes, right? Version one is the first step, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because the co-living sector is kind of going through. COVID wiped a lot of people out. There was high vacancy rates. The industry is very much pulled back on it 
for a lot of reasons. We're still bullish on it, of course. Micro apartments where there's a little bit of a higher variation where there may be a hot plate, there may be a small refrigerator. Everyone has their own bathroom, but then they share amenity space. The thing of it is there's multiple sub-institutional investors, including institutional investors who have delivered products and are performing extremely well. So again, not truly innovative out of the box idea, but you really see the innovation and I think is more on the operating side. I was going to say, that's the piece that drives everything, right? You got guys using technology, software platforms that are, again, making the process very frictionless and easy for the prospective tenant. Is that something you guys brought in and created, or do you third party that out, or did you create it for your own? The goal right now is to third party. It's really challenging because we're delivering product that middle market stage, and it's hard to get a velocity. And you're developing. I mean, so there's like, it's hard to put on all the hats anyways, right? Totally. So we are going to outsource that. We're making a decision that actually at the end of this month, as far as who we're going to go with. And I think internally, we will see how it goes. We have a very high standard as to how we want to operate these things. Again, we study this top to bottom. And for us, we want to be a great operator, but I also don't want to get caught in the minutia of operating if I don't have to. I want to be a developer, right? I want to go get more deals, put capital to work. And that was where I came from was construction. But I also love their operating side. We're advocating for that right now. And to us, it's like we have to make that work first before we go out there and really try to do more deals and raise more capital. So, Yeah, amen. Well, Matt, I'll tell you. So I said for the longest time, I would never create a management company. And here this year, I did. So for good or worse, it is now a part of my living, breathing company. And I'm actually glad I did. But at the end of the day, it's just your vision. You want to meet your vision to what you are planning to operation efficiency, right? And sometimes the marketplace will provide it. For my case, finally I got to the point of frustration where I'm like, the marketplace is not providing my vision the way I see it, and you have to make changes, right? So not everybody's not as unfortunate as me, but I'm gonna take it as a grain of salt, so I'm glad that I did. It's interesting to me because some of the most sophisticated institutional investors in the world, right? Not just in the US, in the world, are vertically integrated, right? Top to bottom, start to finish. If you looked at my slide deck eight years ago, I'm like, we're going to vertically integrate all the way across the board. And then you start project one, you're like, whoa, I don't have the time or the capacity. Like I'm already working 60 hours a week and barely scratching the surface, right? So you're right. Like that's the thing. And that's where to me, it's interesting living in the backyard of Silicon Valley, where you see where venture capital dollars help people scale their operations relatively quickly and mitigate those baby steps, right? When you bootstrap, you're kind of baby stepping it. I didn't take that approach. It sounds like you didn't take that approach. And unfortunately, you do kind of have to sacrifice certain things. There is. There's a learning process to it, but it's all worth it in the end. I think going the slow route sometimes is more purposeful and you get to keep more of what you created. We'll put it that way. I would agree with that. Right. And to me, that was more important than making a dollar. Right. So I wanted to control the integrity of the company that I was building and make sure that I always had control of it. Yeah. And the vision was ours. Right. And much like with your vision right now, it's an amazing vision. Right. Visionaries are hard to find, by the way. And to watch it go into motion is a beautiful thing. Right. So, Matt, I want to tell you, I mean, just the fact that you're trying to do something, innovating something, not an old idea. It's all, there is no very many new ideas out there. Yeah. <laughs> Especially not real estate. But the execution of a plan 
that is somewhat a little more complicated than most, right? Because it involves a lot of construction, older buildings. Yes. But if you think about it, in the markets that you're talking about doing this stuff, I've walked through these bigger cities where I'm like, look at this building. I'm like, it's vacant. Yeah. It's nothing there. Right. And you look at that and say, man, that could be opportunity. Totally. Right. For a budding real estate sponsor, I mean, that's kind of the key, right? Is really find what your skill and expertise in the area is and just drive that home as much as you possibly can. We've taken on a lot of really complex projects for a small projects that we've done. And it's been a ton of brain damage, but my background was in construction. And so I've been able to take those on. We're not going to lose money. In some instances, we're kind of maybe we're at like a core return versus an opportunistic, I think, in some of them. But we had the lesson, the learning. And at the end of the day, because we tested ourselves at a very high level, I mean, 140-year-old adaptive reuse building, we're doing two of them now. Oh my God, it doesn't get any more complicated than that, right? Especially for a small scale project. But it really greased the skids for me to become a developer. That was the thing. It's like, how do I make that jump? How do I get to that next level where I can recruit capital? How do I get my stamp, right? Yeah. And say like, I've done something. We've split off two lots and we're going to be doing two vertical constructions. Those were great deals for us that allowed us to build our chops and understand the process again, because I didn't come from a developer background at a very low risk, at a level to which we had money to play. And we can make some of those early mistakes because we didn't have retail LPs in the deal. This was family and friends capital. And that's the thing for budding sponsors, people who are you know, maybe listening who are kind of trying to get to that level is don't be afraid to outpunch your coverage but leverage your skill sets, leverage what you know, right? Because whenever you do a deal, it's all the things that you don't know that kill you, right? I mean, I'm layering off all the soft cost numbers that I missed in my pro forma and going back to my pro forma and plugging those in right now. And oh my gosh, we went four more months. I didn't even come close to calculating how much that extra time was going to carry us in soft cost, right? So version 2.0, it's sharper and sharper. Every time you get it, you get better at the craft, right? And now I got my dashboard set up. I'm turning the dials. I'm tightening everything up, man. I'm excited. So. Oh, I love it. Well, listen, I want to thank you for your time and sharing a whole different space. I don't think we've talked about anything like this on this podcast, but it truly is amazing. I love talking with entrepreneurs, like visionaries that are coming out and trying to do something new and innovating and really just putting it all together. I think, Matt, that's what you've displayed on this podcast and so excited for your growth and for your future. A couple quick questions. What books have you been reading that really have been turning the needle for you? Yeah. I always go with the most recent one. Who Not How is a favorite of mine. I'm in his coaching program. (laughs) I mean, it's drawing a blank. I'm on the spot right now. So I'm in strategic coach workshop. So Who Not How, Dan Sullivan. That was a big one for me recently that I really enjoyed. One of my favorites of all time is Howard Marks. He wrote an investing book. And again, the name is escaping me at the moment. Anyone moving into the investing space, you have to listen to Howard Marks. He doesn't speak in great complexities. Everything that he talks about, he's just artful in his conversations. Very simple, easy to understand. And he talks a lot about that in the investment space where the biggest risks are always the things that you don't know, especially in the real estate world, because there's so many variables. You really have to obsess over not what you know, not what's in front of you, but take the time to put yourself on that box and say, what have I missed? What am I not thinking of? Those little voices in your head are obviously sometimes telling you those things. And I really enjoy Howard Marks when it comes to investing. But from a growth perspective, scaling your company, Dan Sullivan's Who Not How, can't get a better book than that. 
Yeah, that's a great book, right? It's funny when you really read that book, because you start to look at yourself, and you're like, well, why am I doing all this stuff, right? Totally. I don't need to do it. I need to find the person that does it well, right? And watch what they do. Watch what they how they percolate your company, right? Now, that's growth. Growth is weird. In the beginning, you strap on growth in your company, yep. and it's me. But you learn along the way that if you pick up the right people, they will carry that load with you and actually carry it better in certain areas, right? Totally. What I love about the workshops that I go to now is I'll explain a problem to someone or we'll talk about a problem and someone will just immediately be like, oh, you just had the wrong who. It's just so simple, right? It's not this complex. It's like, oh, you just had the wrong who. And it's really interesting when you put things in that context, it's like, oh, you kind of work back. No, it was this. It was that. It's like, oh, it just wasn't the right person for the job. We just had this experience just in our office. This girl, she was inside sales, we'll call it, right? And great person. I love a person, but she was a personal friend, right? Now, this is Corey did it on his heartstrings, but it just wasn't the right fit. So we had to let her go. And then we found the right who. And they came in immediately and changed the whole office. Everybody's like, oh my God. And then things like boom, 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 boom. And it was so immediate and so quick and so fast that when you really understand the power of the who, not how, it really is amazing. So Matt, how do people find you and your company? Where do they go? Yeah, just go to our website, re-viv.com. There's a link on there if you want to schedule a call with me to talk about our upcoming investment opportunities or talk about the co-living product. All that's on our page, as well as past podcasts and what we're up to and deals that we have raised or currently trying to raise. And yeah, it's all there. Awesome. Awesome. And any last thoughts or words you'd want to give to anybody listening right now that's maybe newer or getting and going and starting something new? What would you tell them? I'd like to add on to your comment about the personnel change that you had. A therapist of mine once said to me, inadequacy is the most prominent insecurity. And the interesting thing about when you have the wrong person in a job, they really start to feel inadequate, right? And it creates a lot of friction. And as human beings, we want to be productive members of our community. We want to be accepted, all those things. And so there can be great toxicity in environments sometimes when you put too much pressure on people to do a job that they're not qualified for. And I would really just challenge people, especially in new organizations where everyone's running around with their hair fire, everyone's trying to be the jack of all trades, master of none. There's a lot of thoughtful exercises you can take on to really understand people's skill sets. Again, strategic coach, we're going through the Colby assessments. I'm implementing that company-wide. For the budding entrepreneur, think about those things. Think about the who's that you have in front of you, what they really excel at, and try to position them in those activities because no one wants to feel like they're not doing a good job, right? And everyone, I think, for the most part, inherently shows up and wants to do well, not just by their employer, but by the people that they work with. you know. And I think for early entrepreneurs, I've made that mistake so many times and put so much pressure on people. It's one of my biggest regrets, especially when it fractures a relationship with someone that you deeply care about. And those things happen in business, right? For me, that would be something for early entrepreneurs to really focus on. You don't see it as much, I think, at a higher level because I think people just kind of work those kinks out, right? The understanding that you and I have of just finding those right who's. But in the beginning, part of that, we look at Traction. Traction is another book that we will follow a lot of. Having the right people in the right seats, using a Kobe test or a predictive index test to find the right skill set for that particular job, that they like that work, right? So, I mean, it really is so important because accounting people are way different than salespeople. 
right? Accounting people, you can put them in a corner and shut the door and they like it. Yeah. A salespeople, you put them in that same corner, they'll like, this sucks. I'm out of here. Totally. And it's funny how like sometimes even as a founder or someone, when you're kind of doing all that, you're like, why isn't this person getting this? Why are they able to pick this up as quickly? It's like, well, maybe you're the person for that aspect of the job and they're just better at some other piece, like just executing, right? Yep. It's something that I wish I had attacked more aggressively. It's always kind of been in the back of my mind intuitively that maybe that person is the right fit, blah, blah, blah. Especially with the work that I'm doing through the workshop, it's really come to fruition and hit home for me. Man, that's some great insight. Everybody that's listening right now, like take the, down these notes of what we've talked about because these are little things that we've learned in our businesses that if we could go back, we'd like be even more efficient, be a little bit more strategic because when you first start, you have finite resources. These little dollars that you have, you want to spread them out the best you can and make it have lots of value and getting the wrong person in the wrong seat is a big suck and you don't want to have that feeling. But you will make mistakes, but the good news is we can all fix them. And Matt, You're a budding example of someone that has gone through, have vision, and really doing some extraordinary things. So thanks again for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge, your wealth of abundance, and giving us a good insight onto something I've never really thought about lately. And so I really appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for the kind words, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Guys, as you listen to this podcast, remember, this is what we do each and every week. We bring guests like Matt on that really bring value and and just a different perspective and a different idea of how to make real money in real estate. There are so many ways to make money in this game. It's a beautiful game, guys, but it does not start unless you have an idea or a dream. Matt took his vision, then seeded it, he watered it, he watched it, he grew it, he nurtured it, right? And it was the idea that is so intoxicating. Guys, if you don't have that idea, if you don't believe in that ideal, you will never be successful. You will never have a huge level of success, right? Guys, if you believe it, you can achieve it. And your paradise is possible.